0: Uh, welcome to this episode of the Bed and Goods podcast. I'm speaking to Kevin Erdman, who's a visiting fellow at the Mercatus Center. Um, Kevin has written two books about the uh, about the myth of the housing bubble and the great uh, the, uh, recession that that uh, followed. Uh, his first book, out was published in 2019. And his next book, Building from the Ground Up, uh, is coming out in January 2022. Both of these, these books talk about how uh, the, about the so-called housing bubble which was actually caused by supply shortages in housing. So, uh, hi, Kevin. Thanks for uh, coming on the podcast. Yeah, hi. Thanks for having me. So, if I were to um, summarize the thesis of both your books, it, it would be that first. Um, the the conventional uh, story we have about the about the America of tooth of the uh, first decade is completely wrong. The conventional st- uh, story goes: over from two thousand two and onwards, there was an increase in um, in 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 subprime lending, in in credit to people who s- s- did not deserve it, as uh, the as the uh, story goes, and this and, and and this led to worse consumer credit. It, it led to a boom in housing prices, and then uh, too loose Fed policy fueled this, and it, it all came crashing down in um, mid 2008, and then we paid the, the price for it by having a slow recovery. But if uh, we look at the data and we and we look at what actually went on, it was it was uh very likely caused by a supply shortage of houses in the in the most productive c- c- cities, and then internal migration patterns led to house prices booming elsewhere. And that led to um and and then that uh and that along with a lot of other factors led to a boom in house prices, which then became a bust uh, entirely due to policy-related reasons. Am I reading that correct?
1: Yeah, that's a good summary.
0: So that's uh, that's the
1: conventional wisdom, right? Yeah. Right. Well, it, it, I guess the yeah the last part was my correction to it. Yeah. Hmm.
0: So why is the conventional wisdom wrong? Um, what is it about a uh, supply shortage or, or, or NIMBYs, as they are called on Twitter? Why were they responsible mainly for the uh, increase in housing prices over the two, 2000s?
1: Uh, I think maybe the simplest way to address that is to uh, talk about rent. And there, there, there was a uh, you know an extensive federal investigation into the financial crisis called the financial crisis inquiry commission that issued this big giant report. You can, you can get the book. It's like, you know, four or 500 pages long. Um, and in that book, they they basically outline something like two dozen different sort of demand side causes of the financial crisis that, you know, you sort of touched on subprime lending or um, uh, you know, speculation in the housing market or um, you know, uh, uh, federal, Housing subsidies are, you know, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and, and all, you know, all these different factors that they go into. And in that uh, in the report, they spend a, a single uh, paragraph talking about rents. And in that paragraph, they dismiss rents as an important factor in a rising housing costs. Um, and the reasoning is that price to rent ratios across the country were going up. So prices are going up in spite of rents that are, that are stable. Uh, but, but curiously in that paragraph, the, the, they highlight the cities where rent where price to rent ratios had gone up the most. And two of the cities they highlight are Los Angeles and New York city. And, you know, the curious thing about those choosing those two cities is those are two cities that probably had the highest rent inflation <laughs> in the entire country. So, they didn't realize that they were actually picking the best examples of rents being the cause, the base cause of rising prices. Uh, and the, the trick there, you know, the the sort of subtle way that it's easy to be fooled by the data if you look at it at, at, on the surface level is that prices tend to go up more than rents do when rents go up. Um, there's There's more than a one-to-one, there's sort of a positive feedback between rents and prices. So anywhere where rents go up, the price tends to go up, you know, higher. So, so in, in Omaha, uh, you know, an entry level home might sell at a price to rent ratio of 12. Um, and, but, uh, uh, in high-end Omaha, it's going to sell more like 20, and in San Francisco, it's going to sell at 25. So there's, there's a, in, in any context you look at it, there's always a positive relationship between price-to-rent ratios and rents. So it's this weird thing where the denominator is actually driving the ratio up and down in a positive way. Uh, and so in, you know, in that paragraph, they dismiss rents because of taking that surface-level viewpoint, not realizing that rents are actually explaining. So if you start in say the early nineties and take snapshots of the American housing market, uh, up to today, uh, cross-sectionally across all the metropolitan areas, um, rent has steadily been a more and more important factor driving home prices. Um, you know, before the boom, during the boom, during the crash today, uh, rent, because the key factor in the American housing market is the lack of supply in these key centers, it, that problem just keeps rationing up and the rents in those places keep getting farther and farther from the rents in a normal city that doesn't have that problem. And prices keep multiplying higher in that context. So in a single paragraph, they get that fact wrong and move on to, you know, so, so then there's a, a two dozen other reasons they have to come up to plug the holes of the thing that was the real reason that they missed and they don't they don't mention migration at all of that um, paper. Uh, you know, the migration comes in because where there's such a shortage of housing, where the price to rent ratios have risen so much, um, when you do have a housing boom, it actually has to lead to a depopulation of those places. And that's what hap- That's what's happening today. That's what happened in 2004, five and six. Um, as As people were, you know, as there was a sort of moderate increase in per capita housing consumption, um that has to lead to people leaving those cities because the the housing stock can't grow fast enough to meet new demand. and then that wave of migration is what hit places like Arizona and Florida and Nevada um, And they don't talk about migration at all in that um, in that 400 plus page report. So those really are the two most important things you know to know uh, to know what's, uh you know to to analyze the difference in home prices from from city to city in the united states over the last 25 years the two most important things to know were what's been happening at rents and what's been happening in their migration flows Um, and those those factors have just simply been missing from conversations about the about those events
0: So uh, you classify cities into four types, actually three, because the last one's unclassified. But the first one is closed access cities where it's relatively hard to build homes. The second would be contagion cities where where, where there was a population boom because people moved from the closed access cities to contagion cities and open cities where it was uh, relatively easy to build homes. So supply expanded and there wasn't a large price increase. Uh, How how did the the interplay between these uh, three types of cities lead to uh, higher house prices across the country? Because there's the famous Robert Schiller chart you, you you talk about, where the entire house price thing goes up, but you say you know that that's not that actually what's happening here.
1: Yeah, yeah. So you know the important uh, sort of problem with that chart is well, there's two important problems. First, so it uh, you'll, the, the best attempts at using that chart, try try to adjust for inflation. So they'll show real home prices. You know, and Robert Schiller's explanation would be that, um, you know, home prices shouldn't rise any higher than inflation rises uh, because if rents go up, people build more houses. And uh, so over the long-term, uh, an investment in a, in residential real estate shouldn't return any more than the rate of inflation. So they, so they deflate that measure with just general inflation. Uh, and so you get this flat measure for 100 years. And then suddenly at the beginning of the 2000s, it, it rises you know, well above uh, any past uh, ranges. But so the first problem with that is uh, homes aren't just going up the rate in inflation because for 40 years, rent inflation has been persistently higher than general inflation because we've created these cities with uh, excessive uh, obstacles to housing construction. So there's every year we transfer more of our income in, in economic rents to monopolists who own homes in places where it's illegal to build um, to, to create uh, substitutes. Um, so, So you can actually, do a lot with that graph just by deflating it with shelter inflation, with rent inflation instead of general inflation, actually does quite a bit to sort of get rid of that false picture of going flat for years and years and then shooting way up outside the norms. The second thing is there isn't an American housing market. There's these closed access markets uh, that are characterized by uh, political limits to supply, and there are other places that don't have those limits. So if instead of doing a, a United States housing index, you do a San Francisco index and a Los Angeles index and a Dallas index and an Atlanta index, what you find is Dallas and Atlanta are just relatively flat lines until after 2006 when they, when they go far below the long-term norms. Um, and then San Francisco and Los Angeles actually rise much more than even the regular Schiller United States index rises, because those, those are the cities that where the problem exists. Um, So there wasn't a, like a national inflation of home prices. There were places that could build uh, where the, where prices just look normal and, and actually when we were building a lot of homes in the mid 2000s, rents were moderating in those cities. Um, And Cities where it's a problem and rents are going, you know, rents are taking 50% of a working family's income and prices are skyrocketing rocketing as a result. And then there's these few places that are in between those that were the main places that got these migration waves uh, of people escaping the housing deprived cities um, that briefly had a price boom that, you know, then reversed when their migration reversed.
0: So if I understand this correctly, over the early 2000s, there was an increase in uh, in rents, both literally and economically because of um, s- supply constraints in uh, closed access, high productivity cities like New-, New York and San Francisco. And this led to people moving away from From those cities to other cities which which um which allowed for a little more building but not as much as Dallas or Atlanta and this led to house prices booming there
1: yeah yeah so it seems to me that what happens is demand for housing really seems to have very little effect on prices within you know a range uh you know at the bottom of the range is basically zero population growth um you know, if you get below zero population, if people are leaving a metropolitan area for other reasons and actually leaving it with an excess of existing housing, um, then prices can can collapse there for supply reasons, you know, but for demand reasons. And there's some maximum level of housing permitting that each metropolitan area, you know, sort of, so the closed access cities max out at, you know, uh, exceptionally low rates of growth. So they, it's really very hard for them to grow up more than about one percent population growth annually, uh, because they they're already hitting their maximum willingness to permit new houses there. Other cities, you know, Dallas and Atlanta and Phoenix probably all, and, and Austin is a you know you could put it in that they all probably have sort of a similar maximum around like at four or five percent population growth. They start to. Um, you know, sort of reach their, their local bureaucratic limits for for building and growing and permitting new units. Um, and so really the difference between um, Dallas and Phoenix in 2005 was that because Phoenix was taking on so much of this migration from coastal California, Phoenix hit that, whatever it was, 4% a year growth limit. And then suddenly you get this sort of nonlinear, you know, Phoenix and Dallas look very similar up to about mid 2005 four and then prices shoot up in Phoenix because suddenly demand has reached so far outside the the norm that it that it's become an important factor in, in prices whereas Dallas just continued you know growing at two or three percent a year and, and it didn't reach their local bureaucratic limit for growth um, the oddity today is that all these cities like Phoenix and Austin are reaching their bureaucratic limit for growth today at maybe probably less than 2%, like much lower than then, uh, which I think is a sign of some of the new problems that regulations we've uh, implemented since the crisis. But but back in that 2004 to 2006 period, um, you know, you've got sort of two factors. How many homes are you capable of building? And there's this handful of cities that just have such low uh, capabilities that any amount of demand is going to maintain high prices there and a bunch of other cities that sort of could grow you know if if there was demand they could grow uh pretty well and a handful of them ended up growing so fast that they sort of had these short you know the sort of the classic bubble setup of elastic long-term supply but inelastic short-term supply uh which is where you get sort of a textbook bubble situation which is what you got in, in a phoenix in las vegas at the time
0: um Another thing which is uh, so what about the idea that there was um, so that there was worse consumer credit that there were subprime as the Bishop were ninja no income no job no asset mortgages uh, didn't that play a part in it um I think it you know there there's
1: research um, that besides mine that that you know tends that has shown sort of credits having really being more of a lagging factor that places where prices rose um, uh, you see you see the use of credits arise after prices rose so so sort of rising local incomes or whatever things like that, that were uh, were affecting local prices and, and the lack of supply and you know combined with those other factors and then Uh, you know, either just because it takes more money to buy the more expensive homes and and you naturally have a a proportional increase in debt over time as that happens, or, uh, you know, homeowners that had equity in homes that they had owned all along could start borrowing from their equity uh, to get liquidity for for consumption. Um, So generally what I find is that... uh, I. To me, I, I, I sort of split it into two periods. Up till about the end of 2005, I think for the most part, it's an equity-driven um, boom. And there's some sort of proportional increase in lending going along with it. And um, and to the extent that, that there is a connection, that lending is, is fueling uh, a building boom. Uh, and we needed more houses. The building boom was actually fulfilling a need for shelter. Uh, there was no reason to fear the supply side of that boom. Uh, in fact, the supply side of that boom was sort of a second best solution to, you know, we were building homes in Phoenix instead of Los Angeles. Um, and so, so all these disruptive elements had to be put into place in order to build those homes. Because you know, the the elements that the the stresses that force people to move from LA to Phoenix uh have to be put in motion in order for those homes to serve their their purpose. Um so there were disruptions, but I don't, you know, uh i I'm, I'm not sure that that I think there an argument could be made that they weren't really being driven by debt at that point. Um and to the extent that they were, it was producing supply that was uh, fulfilling a need anyway. After two thousand five, that two thousand six and seven period—that's really the period that you get all the mortgages that ended up defaulting. Uh, and but by the end of two thousand five, they weren't fueling more building. Uh, housing starts were collapsing. Prices had um, prices had uh, leveled off. And so increasingly, as you move into 2006 and 2007, I think that borrowing is more of the type of households in places like Phoenix that had a lot of equity in their home uh, where the migration event is receding. Those local economies are actually early into the recession. And people are people at that point now are borrowing out of their homes for spending. And so those loans end up going bad. I I don't think they necessarily needed to go back as bad as they did. You know, we sort of forced them to go bad. And the reason we forced them to go bad is because there was a conflation of that, of that borrowing in the national uh, conception of what had happened. And it all just looked like bubble building so that, you know, most people just see the entire 1997 to 2006 period as this period of excess borrowing and, and Unfunded consumption, um, and so all that was bad, and and everyone who had borrowed needed to be taught a lesson. Um, and but really, the the troublesome borrowing had nothing to do with the building boom. The building uh, built housing starts had really peaked by the end of two thousand five, and so um, you know all the, the the vast majority of the mortgages that defaulted were taken out really in what was more accurately described as the first phase of the bust and the bust was input impo- what wasn't an inevitable reversal of a bubble because we weren't overbuilding we needed homes the bust was a result of our insistence that a bubble required uh, a comeuppance uh, and you know and so you get you know, you know um, there's people all over during that time period there's people all over the place making explicit pronouncements that we can't stabilize the economy because if we do, these people won't, they'll just do this again and they won't learn their lesson. Uh, You know, once you start having that sort of language among policymakers, policymakers still using that language five years later when they write their book about the policy decisions they made, um, you know, it becomes a, you know, the economists would call it the endogeneity problem, right? In in the new book, the analogy I use is uh, tying uh, concrete blocks to someone's feet and pushing them off the boat, and then complaining that they never took swimming lessons. It's you, you're sort of inserted yourself into the into the process at that point.
0: Uh, when you speak of policymakers, one of the criticisms from a lot of uh, monetary economists like John Taylor is that uh, Fed policy was too loose for the period of two 2000- thousand to 2007 that according to the uh, Taylor equation and other monetary policy rules, um, you know, the Fed should have had higher rates. Uh, I, what impact would this have had?
1: Um, I mean, you know, I, if the Fed had created a recession in 2004, certainly all of those, uh, all of those, events in places like Phoenix that led to defaulted mortgages wouldn't have happened. Um, uh, so, you know, I, I suppose, um, if you, if you kick yourself before you get off the floor, you don't have to worry about falling down. Um, but, uh, there's actually a really sort of interesting, um, a point in time, which is the Fed had a big meeting in the at the end of August in 2007. Uh, Ed Lemer from UCLA gave a really important presentation at that. And so did Taylor. And at that presentation on um, Taylor's portion of it, um, you know, he makes the argument you're making um, that they had been too loose. And interesting, you know, it's interesting he 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 can't really blame loose policy for excessively high uh, inflation, co- because there just really wasn't excessively high inflation. And in fact, by the time he's giving that report, to the extent there was any inflation above a percent or a percent and a half a year, it was from rent, rent inflation because we had already um, destroyed housing starts and construction activities so much that rents were rising because we were making the housing shortage worse by then. Uh, and so, his, you know, so, uh, the only thing he can complain about is high home prices um and and then he you know then he he asserts that having had high home prices that led to oversupply and so he estimates the oversupply when he gave that talk at about a million units well by the time he gave that talk in in August 2007 housing starts had already collapsed uh, collapsed far enough that we we would have already like, made up, you know, we, we were already underproducing by a million units compared to the peak. So, um, so the problem should have already been solved. Um, now, the problem is the Fed listened to people like him a little too much and kept tightening, kept the screws down on the economy so that housing starts wouldn't recover. And eventually housing starts were something like 6 million uh, units before, b- below the level that Taylor was complaining about. Um, so, uh, you know, I don't think people like Taylor have ever come out and said and you know said oh I was you know i I was right that they had that they had induced overbuilding by a million but now they've done enough and and they should you know loosen policies so that we don't you know they, people generally kept um praising further tightening even as the supply uh you know continued well below any, Reasonable expectation of what could have been oversupply by the end of two thousand six.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the most curious parts of the entire recession is that um, the, the recession started in December two thousand seven, early two thousand eight, but housing starts uh, hit the peak in two thousand six, mid two thousand six, if my memory serves right. Uh, yep. What happened in the in the in the in the meantime? What's your ex- what's the explanation for, for that?
1: Yeah, yeah. So and you really even if you look at uh, new home sales, they peaked in like July 2005. So you actually get um, sales peaked very early. uh, And builders actually um, responded to that pretty, you know, pretty quickly. Uh, Within seven or eight months, they had slowed down their building uh, to, you know, so that starts you know, were declining just as sharply as sales. And they were both declining very sharply. Uh, and so, yeah, so, so I think partly what happened is you have this almost a two year period where sales and starts are in free fall and, and the conventional wisdom was built on this focus on prices. And so, uh, to a large extent, in, in the literature, whether you're looking at you know the big short or any of that sort of stuff or academic papers, uh, they mostly just ignore supply. Like people just weren't don't pay attention to it as you know one of the factors you should look at if you know deciding when there's a uh, if there's a bubble happening. So you know what happens is is uh, starts keep collapsing and collapsing and everybody's sort of waiting for prices to, to collapse too. Um, but you know prices didn't in most places didn't need to collapse because in most places prices had never been uh, really that elevated. And in the pri- places where prices were the most elevated, um, they didn't need to collapse because they were elevated for rents. There were a few places like Phoenix like Arizona and Nevada and Florida that probably in any context would have seen some reversal of prices. Uh, But those those are very limited uh, areas. Um, And so, again, going back to this Fed meeting, you know, uh, so the other the other economist I mentioned, Ed Leamer, made what I consider to be a pivotal, uh, important um, presentation there because he actually he actually made the argument I just made at that. It was the the end of August, beginning of September. They were having the, the they go to Jacksonville. Wyoming every year for this for a big annual meeting. And he makes he makes my he makes the argument that prices are aren't a relevant factor in he, he makes the argument that housing is probably the most important sector in the business cycle and that uh, and that you shouldn't focus on prices because prices tend don't tend to be very volatile but the housing starts are very volatile and that they're a key leading indicator um, uh, signaling coming recessions. And at the point he's making that presentation, uh, that indicator is screaming that there's a recession coming. By the time he made that presentation, uh, I think starts were down uh, at least 35% nationwide and and over 50% in the, in the, the bubble, quote unquote, bubble cities like Phoenix and, and or Arizona and Florida, um, and so uh, the the story he's telling it like he he he's telling them exactly what they need to hear that starts are really important and they're telling you that a crisis is coming, mm-hmm. and then he reverses on himself and says you know so I've explained to you how the entire post World War II economy you know has the secret weapon that we can see coming recessions but this time we built so many extra houses in 2004 and 5 and 6 that you can't you know normally you could reverse housing starts and 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 stimulate the economy until housing starts recover but this time that option's not available to you so there's a recession coming in 2008 and 9 it's going to be really bad and and I, I you can't do anything about it, and I don't recommend doing anything about it. it is essentially the takeaway of this presentation. Um and so again, you know, we once you've inserted yourself into the process, you you know, the sure the, the recession was inevitable at that point, but it wasn't inevitable because the fates had determined it was inevitable because we were playing the fates, um, or at least enough important people
0: self-induced as Scott Sumner would say.
1: Yeah, yeah. So yeah, If he, I mean, Scott, I, I learned a lot from Scott's, uh, you know, take on the recession that really, I, uh, to me, like knowing Scott's point of view, to me sort of expanded my Overton window enough where I could believe the things I was seeing about what seemed to cause, you know, the recession. Um, and, you know, so, you know, once you, uh, once you are open to the idea that it wasn't actually inevitable, then you know you just see the the discourse scattered with all these people, even today that go you know write essays about how well you know of course we had that recession it was inevitable, um, but you know as it was happening those people were saying oh no we can't do anything about it we can't lower interest rates we can't uh, you know loosen up lending a little more that you know mm-hmm. as it tightened because. Uh, because we have to bring, we've got all these extra houses, and we, you know, we have to let that all play out before we can fix it. Uh, and so, you know, at the end of the day, this this question of were there too many houses in two thousand five becomes the pivotal question that you need to know the answer to. Because if there weren't too many houses in two thousand five, then the entire discourse following that period is is sort of a, an exercise of of insanity because it's it's all over. Discourse—it's all over the decision making that we couldn't do anything about it because we had too many homes.
0: What now? I—I think I think yeah. I think that would be the, the main takeaway of your book. Uh, uh, Alan Cole had a great post about it a few a few weeks ago that, that you know uh, the myth of uh, too many houses.
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah it, that's you know it's sort of what's interesting about the topic is there's very little middle ground here. You know once once you accept doubt on that idea you know the thing is uh you know people like people that were on the fed uh you know voting board and that sort of thing that were even in the midst of the chaos in september 2008 saying you know lowering interest rates isn't going to do anything to help this you know it was all this we had this bubble and it was all this excess debt and all these people you know we can't help them they you know like we can't let them off the hook um uh once you know that that can seem like a very like like it's the whole Fed taking the punch bowl away idea, right? Like it's in fact, uh, you know, you look at places like um, the uh, Wall Street Journal editorial um, uh, uh, pieces at the time. So, you know, they would talk about, oh, this is, you know, this is central bankers having character right pulling the punch punch bowl away before the party gets started it takes character to make people suffer losses when they're begging you for for uh, uh, you know for help um that's so that seems like sort of almost like a moral position like you you know we need character right? we need central bankers with the character to do this but for that to be a moral position you really need 100% certainty because if you're if you've got ten percent doubt about that—that that, you know you're actually enforcing uh, financial panic on a large number of people—you um, know there's a ten percent chance that you're doing something really, really bad that, that's totally unnecessary. Um, so as you as you just accept the slightest amount of doubt uh, about about the state of the housing market in 2005, you know, even ignoring prices and just looking at the supply side, um, you know, it's sort of, it opens up this gulf, you know, where there's not middle ground where you'd be like, well, I can understand taking a 20% chance that you're ruining a bunch of people's life for no reason, right? Like it's, Mm -hmm. it's a difficult decision to make. We shouldn't be, you know, we shouldn't be defaulting to that. And so it's this, you know, sort of this weird moral quandary of, of once you sort of, Except that there could be doubt about those premises, um, it really you know sort of shines a different color light on the uh, on the the motivations of policymakers and and pundits and and you know opinion makers at the time uh, that you know were were operating as if they had a certainty about the damage that needed to be done. Yeah.
0: yeah. No. Um I think one of the um now the way you describe it is that I the way I I read uh, I, I've I've read your book is that you take a more um um, qualitative approach to reading these sort of things. It's, it's not that there are no numbers or there are no charts, but the way um, you say is you take a chart and you explain it. And then you, you explain it typically with, uh, then you add on, uh, for example, interviews from Geithner's book or um, uh, Fed uh, minutes at the time. So how did your research process come about in writing this? Because it's, 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 it's definitely more engaging than most economics books.
1: Uh huh. Yeah. Well, did you? Uh, well, I, thanks. I appreciate that. Um, did uh, Did you read Shut Out also? You said yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I. I mean, I think in a way, actually, both books. I uh, the the original manuscript really contained most of the story of both books, and we made a con- a, a decision to split it into two. And and the f- the first half of the book was published as Shut Out. Um. Uh, which is a, I'd say more of uh, Scott Sumner has described it sort of like that's the microeconomic version, and the mm. and um, building from the ground up is the macroeconomic story. Um, but also, shutout was much denser. You know, it's loaded. There's some, I don't know a hundred plus um, graphs, charts, and graphs, and and mm. not necessarily always that easy to read. And and I'm digging very much into. You know, like just uh, fact after fact and, and uh, you know, and I think a lot of people had difficulty getting through shutout. Um, and so in a way, it, part of what the three year interval between the two books was a just uh, building on the, the story that I had for for building from the ground up and and adding new research that i was uh that i was doing to sort of deepen the story but also just simplifying 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 and getting out every complicated chart and graph that you know that was going to slow down the reader or make it more difficult and and so yeah a lot of work went into um sort of getting out anything that was unnecessary and making it more of a narrative approach uh, i mean i i think just because of the way I tend to operate as a researcher, it still has a lot of sort of fact after fact after fact that I'm Mm -hmm. sort of piling on the reader. Um, But uh, but yeah, I, I, you know, I sort of joke that I've actually written eight books and, but it, Roy, I just wrote two books four times and, (laughs) and, you know, sort of wrote a book and then spent, you know, six months writing it and a year and a half deleting and ended up with, uh, hopefully what's the core of something that uh, can sort of pull you through without overwhelming you. Because the problem is the story is so huge, right? There's so many facets. I can't just write a book about one facet, right? Because, because the reader has the other nine facets in their head that they'll be saying defensively, well, I, you know, fine, you know, you're talking about this facet, but what about these other nine things? So <coughs> to, to an extent, I have to spin nine plates at a time in order for the reader not to dismiss what I'm doing.
0: Yeah. Now, um, how do you measure your success for like in general? Because um, when you run your business, you, there's a concrete measure: the amount of money you make, the customers you serve. But but when you're working here as uh, as a researcher in a nonprofit, how do you measure the how how do you measure the success of your research? <laughs>
1: Um, yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's been slow going, you know, again, because the the topic is so big and and there's so many, um, it, it, it's, it's hard to get, um, skeptics to engage in it because for for them to engage in it, uh, they, they have, you know, they have to think, think about all nine of those plates that are spinning, um. And so, you know, a a lot of, um, I I think that sort of made the uh, dissemination of the idea sort of slow going because understandably, a lot of people that might be challenged by it are just like, you know, I I don't have two days to, you know, to try to figure out what this joker's trying to say, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So in a way, it's probably slowed down by the fact that I did sort of accidentally end up in this topic and, and didn't have sort of a... A, a reputation to sort of, you know, sell the big idea with. I've had to sell the idea just with the research itself. Um, but, you know, the people that do engage, it have over, uh, engage with it have overwhelmingly given me positive feedback. Um, and so, you know, sort of a slope that keeps me going, you know, people like Alan Cole and Tim Lee that have mm-hmm. written about it. And, and there are two or three reviews about it, about the first book that were very positive. Um, so yeah, I mean, you know, the shutout, you know, didn't sell a lot of copies, um, but I can see the ideas spreading slowly. And so, you know, uh, uh, it's slow, but the progress has always
0: seemed to be on the right direction. Yeah. Two steps forward, one step backward, as most people say. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, well, I'd say it's, it's been mostly all forward steps. They're just very slow and small steps, you know.
0: <laughs> yeah, I I I think in 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 general, it's 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 hard to get. Um, if you don't have a pre-made distribution, it's very very hard to get your thesis out because it's. Um, Mostly because, first of all, people are in general like shy of self-promoting, which is true among like it's it's true among a subset of, uh, of of academic. But we I, I don't know about you, but like in in Asia, or like in Singapore, there's the, the sense that you should not push yourself out too hard, and then you know people there is a law curve for that. Most people are definitely on the left side of it, and uh, it's it's very, very hard to get your ideas out.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, but, and I do, I owe really a debt to Mercatus for, you know, very early on, uh, uh, they were sort of spurred on by some people that had read what I had done so far and, you know, committed to supporting the work to the extent, you know, I, that the, the books have been written and and I've been able to do research under their umbrella. Um, and it, it would have been very difficult to get any traction without Mercatus's backing, which really, you know, uh, at the time was sort of a, uh, and if you know Tyler Cowen, the head of yeah. Mar- uh, Mercatus at all, you know, that's that's what he's good at is is taking a chance on on oddball ideas and, and uh, uh, things that aren't necessarily, you know, uh, don't necessarily have a natural um, uh, support out there and, and letting people go and and, you know, go where the research takes them. And so it's, Uh, Mercatus has definitely been an important part of the, of the outreach. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, no. Uh, My last question to you, the one that I ask all my podcast guests is, uh, where should ambitious people go today?
1: (laughs) Oh gosh, I I I'm afraid I'm just probably the least qualified person to answer that question. <laughs> I, the ambition had nothing to do with anything. I, you know, if the the reason I'm here is because I had my nose buried in, in um, spreadsheets and and wasn't out doing what ambitious people would be doing. So.
0: No, that's, a, so, that's that's a different sort of ambition, right? You're just looking, yeah. just trying to understand what's going on. It's not yeah. it's not entirely disconnected from what. The conventional idea of ambition is. <laughs>
1: yeah, um, yeah. Uh, I I don't know. Um... <laughs> are, are you saying asking
0: geographically, or are you saying like career path? Uh, career path, but anything. <laughs> i not. I mean, I don't have any constraint. If it's geographic, it's it's fine.
1: Yeah, I I don't know. I mean, I honestly just. Uh, uh... <laughs> The the, on, the only answer I can think of is sort of do, every, do everything I didn't do in the <laughs> last 30 years.
0: <laughs> yeah, I okay. I <laughs> sorry, sorry, that's no, 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 no answer. No. no problem. No, I, I, it, it is still among, among the more honest ones because sometimes people are like, oh, we do this when they have no idea what this means. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> thanks a lot for being there it's it's what i think listeners will love this It's one of the most engaging episodes um so and i really, really enjoyed it reading your books and talking to you
1: yeah yeah Well, thanks for talking to me i appreciate you giving your you're really one of the maybe the first person that wasn't involved in editing and and giving me feedback that's actually written the full or re, read the full manuscript so um yeah so uh so yeah, you're. Uh, I I appreciate you taking a look and, and getting feedback from you
0: and uh, and you know getting the word out. <laughs> yep. So listeners, uh, you can uh, pre-order Kevin's book, uh, uh, "Building from the Ground Up," at Amazon. I'll I'll, I'll include a link on the uh, podcast bio. It's a great book, and you should definitely buy. it. Thanks.